We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sus Fidelium coming at you once again with Michael Graney on Communism Continue. We're doing Modernist Madness today. I think this is our fourth edition. Yes, fourth, fourth one. Yeah. So as always, Michael, thank you and uh, take it away whenever you're ready. Okay. Uh, only our fourth one? Such an endless <laughs> subject. <I> mean, <laughs> the saga minutes. continues. Yes. And and it's continuing today. And just think, we're only up to the end of the 19th century today. <laughs> yeah, get your popcorn ready. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, your beer and sandwiches back in the 19th century, they didn't have too much popcorn in the bars there. <laughs> okay. So anyway, today we're going to be looking at the link between socialism and modernism. Uh, they're pretty much the same thing, just different aspects of it. As G.K. Chesterton said, and Remember last week I said I don't like to insert quotes, so of course I'm going to be inserting all the quotes today. That's a, anything can be called socialism. It seems to mean modernism in the sociological as distinct from the theological sense. In both senses, it is generally a euphemism for muddle-headedness. Now, of course, as one biographer of Kesterton said, he may be the most read and the least understood of all modern authors because people love to go through and find these quotes. Well, in this case, it's appropriate because it says what I wanted to say. Well, what he meant was that modernism is religious socialism, or you could also say that modernism is socialist religion. I mean, it can go either way. Now, uh, modernism is, in a sense, the theology of the new things. Remember, the new things are socialism, modernism, and esotericism, what we think of today as new age. And uh, so modernism, modern, <laughs> having trouble again today pronouncing. So someone told me, a homeschooling mom told me, oh, you have homeschooling pronunciation. That's actually a good thing because it shows you're really educated, even if you can't pronounce any of the words. Anyway, so, uh, Modernism is the theology of the new things. Socialism is the philosophy. And each justifies the other. So in other words, all modernists may not be socialists. Some of them are capitalists. But capitalism and socialism are, in a sense, the same thing. They both put sovereignty into an abstraction. Socialism does it explicitly. Capitalism does it in a, in a de facto way, in an effective way. It gives lip service to the natural law, but it says it's only effective for an elite. You know, those who are in more smarter, richer, more intelligent, that sort of thing. Uh, so <clears throat> modernists tend to be socialists and capitalists, but all socialists are of necessity modernists because they have to change the understanding of the human person in order to make socialism work. I mean, socialism tries to change human nature, or at least it demands a change in human nature. Uh, so, and, and basically, you can, you can say that this is something of an oversimplification because there, as Chesterton said, the muddle-headedness mixes and matches so many things. And this is also why Pius X said that modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. But to try to categorize, you know, collectivism is platonic, and it leads to socialism. Uh, individualism is Aristotelian, you know, uncorrected Aristotelian, and it leads to capitalism. Uh, personalism, you know, the human person is Thomist from Aquinas, and it leads to what we can call economic personalism. And if 
actually understood when you look at what Chesterton and Belloc said, distributism, but not what today's distributists often call distributism, which is often, I, I have actually heard distributism called at one and the same time, democratic capitalism and democratic socialism. So in other words, socialism and capitalism are the same thing, at least according to those people. So, uh, Keep, I'll try to keep on track better today. <laughs> okay, so uh, modernism sought to up, 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 <laughs> beg your pardon again. So I'm starting to stutter and I don't usually stutter. I always like but, saying when I do that for my English speaking people. <laughs> instead of Slurvian. Uh, modernism sought to update Christianity in the same way that socialism sought to update all of society. Modernism, modernism is necessarily a part of socialism because it's essential to overthrow the natural law based on God's nature and go with someone's opinion as to what is God's will. And then, of course, you get into, well, which God are you talking about? The one you just invented or the real one? Usually it's the invented one. Uh, so that it was not by coincidence that Pope St. Pius X when he gave his encyclical on modernism, Pascendi Dominici Gregis in 1907, the modernists, as they are commonly and rightly called, employ a very clever artifice, namely to present their doctrines without order and systematic arrangement into one whole, scattered and disjointed from one to another, so as to appear to be in doubt and uncertainty, while they are in reality firm and steadfast. Now, that sounds like the opposite of what Chesterton said. Not really. They are actually in agreement because uh, it's, it's not a contradiction that they are firm and stead, excuse me, steadfast in the principle, the principle that the end justifies the means. In fact, Chesterton in his book on St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, the dumb ox, said that this modernism and the Manichaeism, which he kind of used them as synonyms. There, there's a curious immortal mutability that they're always changing, try to keep them getting pinned down, which is of course what the modernists are doing now. But if you try to figure out what they're talking about, they don't know themselves sometimes. It's whatever floats their boat at the moment. In other words, if you say X to make the point Y, they'll deny it and use Z even though the next moment they'll be agreeing with you on X, although they're disagreeing with you. Is that sort of like double speak? Well, yes. I mean, George Orwell in 1984 did a great job on showing how, you know, all of this, you know, trying to change human nature, you know, you invent new words, you try to limit words, you change the meanings. And we'll get into a, an example of that in a little bit. <clears throat> so that, there, is, there was no contradiction when Chesterton says it's all muddle-headed and Pius X says, well, they are firm and steadfast in their purpose, which of course is to overthrow Christianity. In fact, all organized religion. Now, it actually, the, the heart of both socialism and modernism reverse what Christ said in the agony in the garden, you know, when he was said, you know, may this cup pass from me, no way your will, not mine. What modernism and socialism do is say, my will, not yours. So it reverses, you know, Mark 14, 36 or Luke 22, 42. I didn't memorize that, I have it written down. <laughs> it's actually rooted, the, the, the whole thing is rooted in the Fraticelli philosopher, William of Ockham. Hmm. Uh, you are, Chesterton uses the Fraticelli as an example of, you know, Christianity, Christianity gone mad in such a way as to, in effect, invent a whole new religion under the name of Christianity, but really isn't Christianity, because they base everything on love. And I think we may have said this earlier in, a, in an earlier uh, episode. Are these episodes or? <laughs> we'll say yes. <laughs> Again, like Star yeah. Wars, it just keeps going and on. <laughs> yeah, except much better than Star Wars. Yeah. We make sense. 
that you know what they do is you know what Occam basically did was distorting what Duns Scotus said in his philosophy that separated the intellect from the will as separate acts ACTS sorry uh, William of Occam basically rejected reason altogether there is only the will there is only love everything is love which inspired the Fraticelli to go around killing and burning and looting and pillaging out of love uh, it also inspired them to abolish property and all kinds of things uh, so but the problem of course is that basing on love instead of justice and reason leads to what Monsignor Ronald Knox called enthusiasm or ultra supernaturalism which he defined as in his book enthusiasm as an excess of charity that leads to disunity stop to think about it if your interpretation of love is causing you to do all these things well and someone else is trying to argue well you know two plus two equals four but my love tells me it's five they're gonna punch you in the nose often and that is why <clears throat> the primacy of the intellect is so it, it's affirmed in Aquinas and uh, the primacy of the intellect over the will see in Thomist philosophy the intellect and the will are joined in a single act because God being a perfect being to think is to do there there is no distinction between the two whereas Duns Scotus separated them and so in Aquinas you know in the first part question 82 a3 and in you know the very first question the first part of the uh, excuse me <clears throat> is that the primacy of the intellect is all that doesn't mean that reason is greater than faith it means it comes first as the foundation you cannot have a contradictory faith mm -hmm. because God being a perfect being he cannot contradict himself or he's not God so this was affirmed in Aquinas it was affirmed in the first Vatican Council you know if you want to it's chapter 4 or canon 2.1 and the oath against modernism the first affirmation when you were administered the the oath against modernism the first thing you said was I state your name uh, you know agree that or affirm that reason I'm sorry I'm, la I'm laughing at what's remember the uh, movie uh... Oh, Animal that was that stupid movie with the guys on campus. We're going to kick those guys off campus, and they have the oath. Oh, I, animals. Yeah. I state, state your name. Your name. Oh. They all say, I state your name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when, when you start laughing, I knew that's what you were thinking. <laughs> but in, in the Oath Against Modernism, the first thing you say is, I affirm that knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law can be known by human reason alone. Now, that doesn't mean it has been proven it means it can be Mortimer Adler got into that with Jacques Maritain and a few other people and they kept insisting that Aquinas had proven God's existence and of the natural law and Adler said that he didn't accept that proof and then he gave this big long thing that to me sounded exactly like what Aquinas had said so I thought well but I take your point it what the Catholic Church teaches is that it can be not that it has been done and of course, to return to our subject, finally, uh, Pius XII in the encyclical Humani Generis in 1950 said the same thing. And the, I think I did make the point that faith is above reason. And, but that, but reason is the foundation of faith. So that when Pius XII said it in Humani Generis, he said, absolutely speaking, Human reason by its own natural force and light can arrive at a true and certain knowledge of the one personal God and also of the natural law. So all the people who are chanting, no, no, it's faith alone, or my love tells me something different. Yes, but you're not agreeing with what the Catholic Church actually teaches. I actually got into it with a Catholic lawyer once, fairly well known, I won't tell you, say his name. But he kept insisting that, no, 
the natural law is based on faith, faith alone. And St. Thomas Aquinas proves this in the first question. Well, it's not what the first question says. What it says is that most people don't have the time to argue or learn or think about these things, so they will accept it on faith, which is perfectly legitimate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you also have to admit that it can be proven and ultimately must be proven on the basis of reason. Mm -hmm. So, no, you're not wrong by accepting all this on faith, but you're wrong to deny the role of reason, which is what the alchemists did and what the modernists do and what the socialists do and also what the New Agers end up doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, let's see. Okay. There, you know, therefore, what we've established is that there is a link between modernism and socialism. And in fact, there's, there's more than a link. They're pretty much two sides of the same coin. And with the shift from the intellect to the will as the basis of the natural law, you know what William of Ockham did, with the in inadvertent help of Duns Scotus by separating the intellect from the will and saying that the will is has primacy over the intellect. In other words, the will can contradict reason. If God tells you to go out and do something, or you think that God is doing that, you don't have to measure it against what reason tells you. If God declares that two plus two equals five, it must be so. Even if your reason tells you, two plus two equals four. And this inserted a, you know, a, a dichotomy between faith and reason or between science and religion, which should never have been there in the first place. And so with, with that shift, God was no longer the focus. See, it was not God as discerned by reason or knowledge as traditionally understood, but someone's idea of God determined by personal faith, that is opinion and utility. In other words, my God wouldn't do that. Well, we don't know if your God would do that, but God might. So these people that say, you know, if something is against nature, well, my God loves so much, you know, you have to insert love in there. He wouldn't condemn me for doing thus and so like killing my neighbor and eating him or something. Whereas you would say, but my reason tells me that that's wrong. So if you think God told you to do that or that it's all right, there may be a flaw in your reasoning. Mm -hmm. You have to go by reason to measure your faith. Because if the faith tells you to go do something against that is the opposite or contradicts what you know is true. Of course, the big problem for most people is how do I know it's true? which it does bring it back in faith, which is why the Catholic Church says, your faith must be properly formed. You can't just go out and decide anything you want. Have you ever read William Cobbett's uh, History of the Protestant Reformation in England and Ireland? I know of it, I haven't read it. Uh, it's interesting, and some parts of it are in a way funny, in a rather black humor way, uh, in that he starts to describe all the things that people decided were okay that God told them to do by their personal interpretation of scripture. And some of them get a little bit wild. Just a little bit. Kind of reminds uh, me of Islam and the fatwas. Yeah. Uh, I happen to know an, an imam who is an Aristotelian, probably one of the world's leading scholars in the philosophy of Ibn Khaldun, who was the Aristotelian, you know, Islamic philosopher. Mm -hmm. And we can discuss the natural law and Catholic social teaching. He has no problem with it. And in fact, he actually got into trouble when, uh, you know, when Pope Benedict the, the 16th gave that speech at Regensburg. Uh -huh. And uh, I almost said his name, I shouldn't, because <laughs> he could get into trouble. Uh, said, but the Pope was right in what he said. And of course, people got angry at him for saying that. Of course, in his opinion, there have been interpretations into the Holy Quran, which I have no basis for saying one way or another. I'll just accept what he says. He seems to know what he's talking about. I don't, and he knows I don't, you know, believe in the Quran any more than he believes in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> but it does show that when you agree on certain principles of natural law, you can actually have an honest discussion, even with an atheist. Uh, so what you had was that the basis of the natural law shifted from the intellect to the will and from opinion to knowledge. And so that you went by, it was faith or reason instead of faith and reason. In Catholic philosophy and theology, the two have to go together because otherwise what you've done is what Chesterton called it the double mind of man. You've split it into two parts so that you can have contradictions because frankly, the only way modernism and socialism can work is to have contradictions. It's got to contradict something somewhere. And so what this does is introduce moral relativism and positivism, even nihilism. Now, on the slide, you'll see that I put Mortimer Adler and Heinrich Roman, not because they agree with that position, they disagree with everything that the modernists and the socialists were saying. Adler, uh, his story was that he converted from a non-practicing Judaism to a non-practicing Episcopalianism to a practicing Catholicism. And if you read his later books, you can see him arguing with himself over the claims of the Catholic Church. Hmm. Finally, he decided, well, the church that gave us Aquinas can't be all bad, and it must be the truth. And Heinrich Roman, of course, was a student of Father Heinrich Pesch, and he was co-organizer of the Königswinterkreis discussion group, which sent two people to Rome in 1931 to consult with Pius XI on writing Quadragesimo Anno. And they, let's see, that was Oswald, Father Oswald von Nelbreuning and Father Gustav Gundlach. So, uh, but we'll get into Peshen in, in, in a later episode, I hope. <laughs> uh, so I put Roman and Adler there, not because they agreed, but because they you know, steadfastly disagree with that position. Reason. And if you really want a good book to read, try Roman on the natural law, Heinrich Roman. There's, it's, if you go to a used book site on the, on the internet, there's, there's plenty of editions out there. Huh. I think Liberty Fund has, in Indianapolis has one. And of course you might be able to get a first edition or something, but it's all the same book. Now, <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, and Adler's book on, you know, the difference between knowledge and opinion is in 10 Philosophical Mistakes. He's got a whole, he's got a, a chapter on it, which I had to read four times before I understood what he was talking about. But that's because I'm a certified public accountant. I'm not a philosopher. Now, the thing was that in the United States, we're still in the 19th century here, even though I keep leaping forward a couple of decades. Uh, the problem was that the whole McGlynn affair, remember our discussion of uh, Ed, Father Edward McGlynn, who was excommunicated for disobedience. That guy. Recanted and that, he doesn't but, go away. <laughs> no, he doesn't. And he'll keep on popping up. Uh, it made dissent respectable after a fashion. Uh, he kept saying what a good American he was, that you know, no good American needs to take orders from a pope in Rome. No good American is going to, you know, want a special school system just for Catholics. The American school, public school system is good enough for any American child. And why should I have to wear a Roman collar just because some pope said so? You know, this. So basically what he did was he drove a wedge between being a good Catholic and being a good American. You know, the old thing about you can't be a good Catholic and be a good citizen at the same time, which is, in my opinion, baloney. Unless, of course, you keep changing what it means to be a good citizen to go along with materialist and statist views and things that are actually contrary to what it, to American liberal democracy. In that case, it's almost impossible to, to be a good citizen and a good Catholic at the same time because they're antithetical. Mm -hmm. And... McGlynn is one of them who helped shape that wall of separation between church and state. Now, the first amendment to the Constitution does not say anything about a wall of separation. What it basically says is that there's not supposed to be any interference between the two. In other words, the state isn't supposed to be, you know, administering a, a religious affairs, nor is it determining doctrine or anything else. 
any more than an organized religion is supposed to be trying to run the country as a political thing. And in fact, Pius XI, when he took over as Pope and was head of the Papal States, made every effort to separate the civil administration from the Catholic Church. He even appointed a head of state, you know, effective, you know, head, I should say head of government, a layman as a prime minister. He only reserved, excuse me, <clears throat> Pius IX only reserved a veto over any law that transgressed natural law or went against the Catholic Church or its teachings. Otherwise, he turned everything over to the laity. In, order, in other words, the true way of understanding separation of church and state, not a wall of separation, but a, a, a separation of administration and each one you know, doing what it's supposed to do in its own sphere. The same way you're supposed to have a, a separation of church, state, and family. The civil government has been interfering so much in familial affairs that it, it's getting it's gotten ridiculous. For example, marriage is not a civil right. It's a domestic right. So that the agitation for same-sex unions to call them a marriage, well, what you're doing is you got the Supreme Court, which is civil law, to interfere in domestic law, over which it has no jurisdiction. Now, the most the civil authority can do is recognize something as a marriage that is already a marriage. It has no authority to change the definition of marriage. So whether you're for same-sex unions or against them, you can't call it a civil right, period. It's a domestic right. Yeah, so Leo, Leo gets into that on our, our Arcanum, right? Uh, Arcanum Divide? Oh, yeah. Ubi Ar yeah, yeah. I, I think so. <laughs> I had to shift gears for a second there before. <laughs> I mean, I, I, this is the problem with getting into a rant in the middle of a, of a lecture here. <laughs> but anyway, by shifting from knowledge to opinion in religious matters, dissent became the new orthodoxy. Because who's to say that my opinion is better than yours or yours is better than mine? Of course, if I can scream louder, then might makes right, which is the whole problem that Heinrich Roman pointed out in his book on the natural law. Once you shifted from the intellect to the will as the basis of natural law, ultimately might makes right. It's whoever has the power to force his, opinion on, uh, his opinions on others who is the one who determines what right is not any objective measure of it, which is what knowledge does. Faith means that I can do anything I want to you because I believe it strongly enough, whether or not I can prove that it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Now, so the McGlynn affair also did something else that was not good. It equated Americanism with heresy, with modernism. And what you had was perfectly legitimate and orthodox people such as Cardinal Gibbons and Archbishop Ireland calling themselves Americanists, meaning that they were good Americans as well as good Catholics. Whereas McGlynn was saying, as an American, you can't be a good Catholic and a good citizen at the same time. That's what Americanism meant to him. Same word, different meanings. It's like liberal democracy. Well, do you mean American liberal democracy, English liberal democracy, or French slash European liberal democracy? Same word, completely different meanings. Now, in that way, Americanism started to become a euphemism for modernism, which McGlynn popularized, and his whole wall of separation. And it basically, he wanted religion to be an arm of the government, or at least integrated into civil society when it's supposed to be separate from civil society, or otherwise it's its own society. The same way the family is its own society. And we won't get into to that lecture. I have a, another whole one on that one. It, it took, I know a doctor of philosophy who it took him a couple of days to explain to me the difference between, you know, civil rights and domestic rights and what is justice in civil society may not be justice in domestic society so that what the socialists love to do is that say that because parents can do thus and so the state should be able to do thus and so 
Well, no, any more than because the state can decide how to punish people. It can tell p parents whether they can even punish their children or teach them. I think back in 1925, the US Supreme Court actually supported the parents when they said that in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, that a child is not a mere creature of the state. The state has no business interfering in a child's education as long as minimum standards are met and not teaching them anarchy or how to overthrow the government or something. Minor thing. But, so what we have established is, or at least I have, uh, that modernism rose with socialism, but it only really took hold after Rerum Novarum and the hijacking of that encyclical into socialism because that gave modernism respectability, in a sense. Because if you can change what Rerum Novarum said into socialism, why can't you change anything else into modernism? So that, <clears throat> it's like, a lot of people think that all this stuff started with Vatican II. Well, I think we're seeing that it started a little bit before then, like maybe 150 years before then. And so that, Socialist misinterpretations of Raymond Novarum popularized socialism among Catholics and others, and it opened up the gates of dissent, which meant modernism was going to have a field day, and it did. Um, what it did was that it allowed dissenters to present dissent as orthodoxy, and orthodoxy as dissent because they differed from the socialist interpretation of Catholic social teaching. And because Catholic social teaching was a relatively new era, uh, area of, of, of the magisterium, you could say almost anything you wanted to because the socialists had earlier captured the language. So, and how many experts did you have in Catholic social teaching? Not very many, especially in the late 19th century. And as we'll see in the next episode, or at least the one after that, the modernists were able to seize, you know, the, the initiative on this and to this day, there are a lot of people who have a modernist understanding of Catholic social teaching who would deny absolutely that they're modernist or even socialist. But once you start digging and realize where all this stuff came from, well, you may not have meant to, but you have imbibed these, these, these notions. Now, what happened is that dissent became institutionalized in a way that would become extremely obvious, of course, with the Second Vatican Council. But it was, wasn't as obvious, but it was there. And in France, for example, you had the sociologist, the solidarist sociologist, David Emile Durkheim. Uh, with him, and he, he seems to have invented the term solidarism. It was not Heinrich Pesch. Pesch actually corrected Durkheim in many substantial ways, but unfortunately, a lot of people who call themselves solidarists are going back to Durkheim for their understanding of solidarism and simply putting Durkheim's terms and inserting them into Pesh. Hmm. Excuse me, in, you know, taking an under, a Durkheim understanding of terms that they both used and basically kicking out the Catholicism of Pesh and the Thomism. And so, Durkheim, he was a modernist, he was a socialist, he was a solidarist, he was also an atheist. He was inspired by the Saint Simonians. Remember Henri de Saint Simon with his new Christianity in 1825. As far as Durkheim was concerned, religion is the group's worship of itself. It's a, soci it's a sociological, not a spiritual phenomenon. And God is a divinized society. Fulton Sheen pointed this out in, I, it was in one of his first two books. It was either in his doctoral thesis, thesis, God and Intelligence and Modern Philosophy, or the more popular follow-up, Religion Without God. He pointed out that according to Durkheim, God is society itself, so that God is evolving over time. Sheen really got into that, but he didn't like that idea at all for some strange reason. I don't know why. I mean, don't you want an evolving God whom you're greater than? Because you invented him. So, but basically what happens then is that as the representative of the people, never people, it's always the people, not actual people, 
the government becomes the mortal god of Thomas Hobbes. You know, Thomas Hobbes, the guy who wrote Leviathan, basically a manual of totalitarian government. And according to him, the state is a mortal god that rules on earth as the immortal god rules in heaven. Well, what Durkheim and other modernists did was say, well, you don't need the immortal god in heaven when you have the mortal god of the state here that you create. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so this is where socialism and modernism meet again. And so because when God becomes a divinized society, the government as the representative of the people turns into God. This is why he may have meant something different when and I, Marx was quoting somebody else, but he, you know when he said that the state is God and God is the state. Well, in that context, yeah. So that now, this is the atmosphere in which Leo the Thirteenth issued an encyclical to the people of France, telling them that they were permitted to accept the Third Republic, mm -hmm. even though the Third Republic was anti-Catholic, anti-clerical. It was pretty much anti-everything. It was as socialist as you could get without declaring itself the People's Republic of France. But Leo XIII was simply telling Catholics, you can accept this government. Well, this was in the encyclical, now you're gonna get me on the pronunciation, but au milieu des solicitudes. It was in 1892, right after Rerum Novarum, on the church and state in France. This was taken as endorsing changes in doctrine to accommodate to the modern world. And uh, that was not its intent. What it was was saying, you can accept this, but who, who said anything about changing doctrine? Well, that's the way the French, the modernist French clergy took it. Not all the French clergy, just, just the modernist ones. Now, excuse me. Now, adding to the confusion, was the fact that there was a biography of Father Isaac Hecker that was translated into French and was taken by the modernist French clergy as advocating modernist doctrines. And what it what basically happened was that there were terms describing legitimate American liberal democracy, but they were taken as referring to illegitimate French liberal democracy, which would require that certain church doctrines could change so had to change so that Catholics could accept the the third Republic in France which was not Leo the 13th's intent in other words you the church was not supposed to become part of the state and so what uh, Leo the 13th said was that the biography of Isaac Thomas Hecker and Hecker was the founder of the Paulists he was perfectly Orthodox but the translation wasn't. And it says, the biography of Isaac Thomas Hecker, especially through the action of those who undertook to translate or interpret it in a foreign language, has excited not a little controversy on account of certain opinions brought forward concerning the way of leading Christian life. This is from Testem Benevolence in Nostre in 1899, an apostolic letter addressed to Cardinal Gibbons. Now, who is Hecker? Well, as I said, he was the founder of the Paulists, but he was an Orthodox Americanist. He was actually a friend of Orestes Brownson. They had worked together. They were former socialists, and they hung out at Brook Farm, and I think that Hecker may have spent some time at Fruitlands, which was the, a commune founded by Brownson Alcott, who was the father of the novelist Louisa May Alcott. Mm -hmm. You know, little women, little men, little whatever. Now that was another weird story, but I won't get into that. They were vegetarians who would only eat aspiring vegetables. Well, they started to starve to death, so he allowed them to eat potatoes if it was mashed and arranged in aesthetically pleasing designs on the plate. I didn't, I'm not making any of this up. It's a, now, Hecker knew McGlynn, and he was, in a pastoral way, of course, extremely critical of him. He saw that McGlynn was undermining all the work that he had done for decades trying to establish Catholicism as a solid part of American culture without compromising on Catholic doctrine, but also making, making certain that it's compatible with the American spirit. 
So he was a, an orthodox Americanist, whereas McGlynn was a certainly unorthodox Americanist. Now, both Hecker and Brownson, you know, surrendered their socialism before they ever decided to become Catholic. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were able to assure the, you know, their examiners and the people who baptized them that yes, we have abjured socialism. And, but what a Brownson especially did was go after the socialists for appropriating Christian language and symbols. That was a big thing with him. If you ever read any of his uh, essays on socialism, you'd see just how upset he could get. Or, well, maybe for him it wasn't upset, but he did have the habit of banging on the table and getting very loud and boisterous and making his point forcefully. It's not say. anger, it's passion. Yes. Yeah. Righteous anger. So now here I'm going to give another long quote. I don't like to do it, but it's so good that, and I did cut out a lot of it, but this is from Essays and Reviews, chiefly on theology, politics, and socialism. It was published in 1852. And Brownson said, Socialism is as artful as it is bold. It wears a pious aspect. It has divine words on its lips and almost unction in its speech. It is not easy for the unlearned to detect its fallacy and the great body of the people are prepared to receive it as Christian truth. We cannot deny it without seeming to them to be want, warring against the true interests of society and also against the gospel of our Lord. In other words, a union of modernism and socialism was in there from the very beginning. I mean, socialism was pitched as the democratic religion to replace Christianity. And as Brownson continued, never was heresy more subtle, more adroit, better fitted for success. How skillfully it flatters the people. It is said, the saints shall judge the world. By the change of a word, the people are transformed into saints and invested with the saintly character and office. Now we get to the punchline. Surely Satan has here in socialism done his best, almost outdone himself, and would, if it were possible, deceive the very elect so that no flesh should be saved. Now, what I'd really like to see is some of these democratic socialists talk, have a conversation with Brownson and come out with a whole skin if they possibly could. But to return, you know, that was in the, he wrote that in the 1840s, soon after his conversion to Catholicism. And to return 50 years into the future, when the modernists were going hammer and tongs after the Americans, you know, trying to, you know, incorporate all the stuff that McGlynn had been talking about, and all the, the socialists and the modernists, uh, the Orthodox and conservative French clergy attacked Archbishop Ireland and Cardinal Gibbons, the leading American clergy, because they were Americanists. And they equated Orthodox Americanism with heretical Americanism. And it got a little bit vicious. I mean, the, you, what you basically have is two groups of Orthodox people, you know, attacking each other. Mm. Although Gibbons and Ireland were more trying to defend themselves rather than a, an attack. And they were basically being accused of heresy in the newspapers and the magazines, which of course got the attention of uh, Leo the Thirteenth, because frankly, even at that time, the American Church was starting to become very important in the Catholic Church. I mean, France was supposed to be the eldest daughter of the Church, but since the French Revolution, it had not been holding its own very well. And there are strong indications that the popes were looking toward the United States to keep Catholicism going, which is why what's been going on in this country is such a a I'll say double plus ungood used Orwell's language. Anyway, this uh, it, Ireland and Gibbons were pretty much forced into a corner. They had to, they denied that heretical Americanism existed anymore. It had been settled with McGlynn. I mean, and to be accused of it again was, was embarrassing and but then Leo XIII issued Testem Benevolentia Nostre, and he clearly condemned heretical Americanism while distinguishing it from Orthodox Americanism. But uh, you still had Ireland and Gibbons saying that, well, 
the problem, if it ever existed, doesn't exist anymore. This doesn't really apply to us. So eventually Gibbons and uh, Ireland, Ireland was the Archbishop of St. Paul, and Gibbons, of course, was the Archbishop of Baltimore. And they eventually submitted to uh, Testem Benevolentiae under quasi-protest because they said, but it doesn't apply, but we're going to submit out of obedience anyway. And what Leo XIII actually said was, we are not able to give approval to those views which in their collective sense are called by some Americanism. But if by this name are to be understood certain endowments of mind which belong to the American people, and if, moreover, by it is designated your political condition and the laws and customs by which you are governed, there is no reason to take exception to the name. So he gave, you know, authentic Orthodox Americanists a way out. Mm -hmm. But of course, most people are not going to be reading that part. And so, as I said, Ireland and Gibbons were in a box. If they denied any heretical Americanism still existed, uh, then they were, were still stuck with the fact that here was the Pope saying it did. And they, they could not admit the existence of heretical Americanism without giving the conservative French clergy who were attacking them evidence, put that in quotes, that they were heretics simply because they were Americans. And of course, the French, most of them, would have done it. Now, there were some very sound French clergy who were saying, but this is all wrong. You can't label all Americans heretics simply because they're American. But of course, some people were. I mean, what else are you going to do for a hobby? Except go after people who are on your own side. And they wonder why the Catholic Church can't seem to get its act together. Well, you got so many people attacking people who are on your own side that you forget the, who the real enemy is. Now, it is a question to this day whether Ireland and Gibbons were willfully blind to the problem or whether they honestly believed there was no problem or they were backed into a corner by the French conservatives. The modernists were able, thereby able to you know, infiltrate even deeper because of an official denial that they even existed. What is it they say? Satan wins his greatest victory once he convinces you he doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, to jump forward a little bit, Pius X actually did the same thing in the rest of the world with the 1906 Syllabus of Errors, and then in 1907 with Pescendi Domenici Gregis on the doctrines of the modernists, and then in 1910 with the Oath Against Modernism. So you had the syllabus, the encyclical, the oath. Unfortunately, Catholic social teaching had been, in a sense, corrupted by the socialists, so the modernists were able to take refuge there because it had already been hijacked by the socialists, which socialism and modernism simply two halves of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. And, you know, socialism requires modernism to justify changes in the natural law, which, of course, you need for socialism. And, of course, modernism is trying to change everything anyway to get away from actual Christianity. So what you had then, modernism, and we're on, we're, we're, this is the conclusion here. So, uh, modernism on the whole went underground before Vatican, you know, the Second Vatican Council. But it you know, took refuge in, refuge in Catholic social teaching, which was not well understood, especially some of the things that Pius XI came up with, which completely baffled people. Even though if they had studied it in the sense that they should have, they would have seen what he was saying, but they kept equating it with socialism and thus with modernism, which made modernism respectable. So that when the Second Vatican Council seemed to allow people to do these things, I mean, the gloves were off. And so that you would, well, I screwed up that ending there. <laughs> uh, basically, that, that is my conclusion that modernism went underground from between Pius X and the Second Vatican Council, it never disappeared. The problem was not solved, and it just popped up again, given the first chance it had. You know, when back when Monsignor Knox in 1950 published Enthusiasm, he said that the problem was in abeyance for a while. It really wasn't. It was there, but it was hiding an open sight, as it were.
All right, well, good. Right, well, hey, Michael, appreciate it as always. And uh, what's up for next time? Well, I think what I'd like to do is get into how the modernists really changed Catholic social teaching. You know, I said the modernist socialists did. Mm -hmm. And this will get into some, bring in a lot of the esotericism that inspired it. And possibly the, the story of Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, which would make your eyes bug out. You won't believe this guy. <laughs> and yet he was the mentor of one of the, what is considered one of the greatest names in Catholic social teaching in the United States, Monsignor John A. Ryan of the Catholic University of America. Hmm. And then, but once you start finding out about this guy, you think, you've got to be kidding. I don't believe that. I've said a couple of those phrases already. Yeah. <laughs> well, Donnelly was known as America's Prince of Cranks. And, well, I, I don't want to give the whole plot away. He started out a Catholic, became a spiritualist, was a, um, a, 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 a an inspiration for theosophy. He was a follower of Henry George. He was a populist who hated William Jennings Bryan. He was, he was against private ownership of land and, of course, made two fortunes in real estate speculation. At the age of 60, he married a 19-year-old girl whom he had trained or something. I mean, okay. Just <laughs> it's like sands through an hourglass. These are the days of our lives. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and he also believed that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. He was really Francis Bacon sending occult messages to his followers in the future. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. What was the phrases again? I uh, can't believe I heard that. I don't believe it. <laughs> or as Anna Russell used to say, I'm not making this up, you know. <laughs> All right, Michael, we'll see you next time. And uh, yeah, look forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs>